0: In Acts chapter 4, we open God's Word. If you are new to Crosslink, and maybe this is your first time today, or you've been visiting Crosslink, praying about maybe this being your church home or whatever, uh, I just want to encourage you up front to know that God's word is not a part of what we do. It's at the very foundation and the focus of who we are and what we do. Uh, frankly, I don't want to bore you with my opinion and my ideals because they really don't matter in the grand scheme of things, but God's word does matter. And his word is eternal, and it should have authority to both guide our lives and govern our lives. And so because God's word is our foundation, every time we gather together, we open God's word together and we study. And so uh, we are thankful that you are here today uh, as well. We've been going through a sermon series throughout the start of this year called Invited to Ask. And we've been reminded that God has invited every single one of us as his children. He's invited every believer to come to his throne and pray. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus, of course, left the throne of heaven. He came to this earth, and he lived a sinless life. And by that, we're saying that Jesus never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He didn't think the thoughts that we have thought. He didn't do the things that we have done. He lived a sinless, perfect life, and he gave his life on the cross. Even though he was innocent, he gave his life for your sins and for mine. But that wasn't the end of the story. Three days later, he rose again from the grave. He appeared to multiple eyewitnesses, over 500 eyewitnesses at one time. And then at the proper time, the Bible says, he ascended to heaven where today, he is seated at the right hand of the father making intercession for us. The Bible tells us that Jesus has done all of that so that we can have a relationship with God. We can know without a doubt that we are saved from our sins. We can know without a doubt that heaven is our home. We can know without a doubt that God is our Father. And because God is our Father, He loves us, He cares for us, and He invites us to come to Him, to talk to Him about anything from anywhere at any time. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, when we come before God's throne of grace, when we come to talk to him, when we come to pray, we don't have to come with with worry or with nervousness. We don't have to come with fear or even the uncertainties. Does God even care? And is he going to hear what I'm bringing? No, the reality is because of God's grace and mercy in our life, we can come with confidence and we can come with assurance knowing that through Christ, there is mercy and grace at God's throne. Throughout the course of this series, we've been reminded that prayer should be a vital part of each of our individual lives. That that literally in our lives, we should love God and we should relate to him and we should depend upon him in prayer. And so we've been studying much of this year about Jesus's example and his instructions of how we are to pray in our individual lives. But as we saw last week and we continue to unpack today, prayer is not just something that should be happening in each of our individual lives, it is also something that should be happening in our life as a body of believers. Maybe you remember the scripture from last week from Mark chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 21. The Bible tells us that Jesus one day was going to the temple. He went there because it was time to go to to worship God, to give sacrifices. It was specifically the time of Passover. And Jesus went to the temple intending or anticipating that the people would be worshiping God and offering sacrifices and praying. But once Jesus got there, he found something, frankly, very corrupt and very wrong. He found that the religious leaders of his day had manipulated the people in such a way that instead of making the temple about a place of worshiping God, they were making the temple about ultimately themselves. Instead of it being a place where people could come to learn about God and worship him, they were using it in such a way and twisting things around, frankly, so that it made their their wallet, their pocketbook, a little bit fatter and sweeter by the day. So the Bible says that Jesus went into the temple that day, and he literally cleaned house. He, he, He flipped over the tables, and he began to rebuke the people, and he said, is it not written, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer? That's exactly right. And in that moment, Jesus shows us, frankly, what was of the heart of God. God's heart for the temple and God's heart for the people who would worship him and would follow him and relate to him is that we should be a people of prayer. What God wanted to be true of the temple is what God also desires to be true of the church today, that we would be known as a people of prayer. Now, it's very interesting when you study the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and his ministry and his miracles and things, that when you put together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see 60 references to prayer. And of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, many of the times, they were telling the same scriptures or the same parable or the same lesson, the same experience from their point of view. So when you begin to narrow that down, we see 60 references to prayer, but really we see about 30 unique experiences or events, if you will. But what happened after Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven? What happened after Jesus' physical body was no longer with them on the earth and Jesus was in heaven interceding for them? What happened to the church then? Well, I think it's important for us to point out, and we'll unpack this more in just a moment. But I want us to see that the early church was very committed to prayer. Prayer was not a passing thing in the service. It was not just at a time of transition, if you will. It was not just something that was done in a moment and then forgotten, no. Prayer was a defining characteristic of who the early church was. In fact, in the book of Acts alone, we see over 30 specific times where the early church took time to pray. Then when you put together all the letters of the apostle Paul and of Peter and all of them throughout the rest of the New Testament, interestingly enough, We see exactly 60 references to prayer listed beyond that. So, Pastor, what are you saying? What I'm saying is, is that prayer was not just important in the life of Christ. Yes, it was, and he encouraged it, and he modeled it, and even commanded it. But we see all throughout the rest of the New Testament, God telling us that he wants us to be a people of prayer. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we're reminded that after Jesus ascended to heaven, the Bible says that the disciples gathered together in the upper room, and it literally says these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, a summary statement of the early church is that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to... Shocker of all days, right? It's, it's a prayer. In fact, we see that in Acts 12, we see the next Acts 13, Acts 16, and the list goes on. This morning, as we look to Acts chapter 4, I believe God wants us to see that he wants us as a church to be a people of prayer, but he also wants us to see what he does when the church prays. So this morning, I want us to look at the subject, when the church prays, from Acts chapter 4, and I want to ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. The Bible says this, I'll give us some context in a moment, but beginning in verse 23, it says this, when they, this is Peter and John, had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, "O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. ...who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now listen to how God answered their prayer, verse 31. When they had prayed... The place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with what? Boldness. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the time we have together and the freedom that we have to open your word. God, I pray today that you would speak to each of our hearts and lives to draw us closer to yourself. Lord, I I pray especially today that for for all of us who are saved, God, that today you would convict us and show us how we can join you in your work of reaching this world for you. But God, I also pray if there's anyone here today that does not know Christ as our Lord and Savior, maybe they're... They're moral and are involved in church and have always been aware to some extent of your presence in their life. But God, I pray that if they don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you would open their eyes to their need for Jesus. And God, I pray that through this time together, that you would draw each of us to a, a close and a vibrant, dynamic relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you. you may be seated this morning when the church prays. Well, of course, we know today, we almost seem to know inherently that the church should be a place of prayer. Amen? But what are we to pray for? What are we to pray about? What types of requests seem to please God? Are there prayer requests as a church that that move God's hand more than others? Well, I believe these questions and more are answered in Acts chapter 4. Now, before we get to Acts chapter 4, it helps us to understand Uh, The background, what is some context for the scriptures that we've read in our time here together this morning? I think it's important for us to understand what was taking place. So let me kind of back up just a little bit. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus was getting ready to ascend into heaven and he commissioned his disciples and he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was Acts chapter one verse eight. Acts chapter one, verse 14, the disciples gather in the upper room and they're praying. In Acts chapter two, the Bible tells us that it was the day of Pentecost. There were Jews from every nation under heaven that were gathered there together for the purpose of worship. And the Bible says that Peter and the disciples, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter stood in Acts chapter 2 and he preached the gospel. And the Bible says in that moment, even though there were Jews gathered from every nation under heaven, they literally, the Bible says they heard the word of God. They heard the message of the gospel in their own tongue. It was an amazing miracle. That very day, 3,000 souls were saved. Lives were changed. They were added to the church in an instant by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 3, as you can imagine the scene, 3,000 people being saved, that's quite a scene. In fact, I would imagine right now here in this building, uh, we probably have, I don't know, 3 to 400 people. So you can imagine 3,000 people is a lot of people, about 10 times probably the group that's here right now. And so all these people are being saved and they're being converted and people are watching in anticipation of what's going to happen. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking into the temple, and as they walk into the temple, there's a lame man who's right outside the temple courtyard. And the Bible says that he's begging for alms. He's asking, can someone help me? Can someone spare any change? Can someone provide for my need? And in my paraphrase, Peter and John, on their way into the temple to pray, they looked at the man Peter did, and he said, we don't have any money. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand and walk. And the Bible says literally his ankles and his feet, his legs were strengthened. And it doesn't just say that he stood up, but it says he leaped. Now, this man had been lame since birth. You can imagine the miracle that's taking place as everybody in that community had passed that area on a daily basis or on a weekly basis. They knew this man had been this way for 40 years. And instantly, at the name of Jesus, he's healed. Well, the crowd begins to gather. Peter again preaches the gospel message that Jesus Christ, it is only by his name that man can be saved, souls can be changed, you can be made brand new in the name of Jesus Christ. And The Bible says that day as Peter preached and gave praise to the name of Jesus, that day 5,000 men were saved. Now, the fact that the Bible tells us 5,000 men suggests to us that there were even more ladies and children. You get the picture here, a great multitude of people are watching and they're hearing and they're responding by believing in Jesus and repenting and turning from their sins. God is doing an amazing thing. But don't you know, every time God's doing something amazing, Satan also does something to try to destroy it. So the Bible says, as this is happening, that the religious leaders of that day called Peter and John into question. Now, remember, these same religious leaders were the very same people who just two months ago stood in a crowd looking at a man named Jesus, and they shouted, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus. Just two months ago, they thought they were getting rid of Jesus once and for all, that they would never hear his name again, that there is nothing significant about this man. He would be done, he would be gone, and he would be no more talked of. But two months later, this man has been healed in Jesus' name, and now thousands are believing in the name of Jesus, turning from their sin, and experiencing the gift of eternal life. The religious leaders couldn't handle it. So they called Peter and John in the question. And the first thing they did is the Bible says they commanded them. You can no longer talk of this man named Jesus. You can no longer speak of Jesus' name. And Peter responded with the wisdom and direction of the Holy Spirit. And he said, wait a second. There is no other name in all of heaven, in all the world, in all the generations. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which man can be saved but the name of Jesus. Jesus. Let me just pause there for just a moment. If you are putting your faith and your hope in any other person or any other name for your salvation, you are going to be terribly disappointed when you stand before God in judgment. The only way we can be saved is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So so he says, look, this is true that there's only one name under heaven given by men by which we can be saved. And so they commanded him, you can't talk about this. Well, and that wouldn't silence Peter and John. The Bible says they reverted to threatening them they threatened them. Well, if you talk about Jesus, if you tell anybody else about what Jesus has done, if you tell anybody else about the resurrection, if you tell anybody else about what Jesus did in your life, if you tell anybody else about this guy that's been healed in the name of Jesus, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. These are the consequences. These are the judgments. This is what's going to take place in your life and in your family. And Peter responded, <laughs> we cannot help but to speak the things that we have seen and heard. Well, the religious leaders, seeing that they had really no, nothing to accuse them of and nothing to condemn them of and nothing to rebuke them for, the Bible says that they released them and let them go. And they went back to the church. They went back to this body of believers, and they began to talk to them. Now, please understand, I think it's important for us to recognize that the early church, immediately hearing this news, they didn't mope and complain. They didn't immediately give up and lose heart. Uh, frankly, if it would have been me in that moment and they would have shared that news with me, I probably would have gone into like a million plans and ideas. Well, this is what we can do, and this is how we can do it, and this is how we're overcome, you know. That's not what they did. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, what did the church do when they didn't know what to do? What did the church do when they were facing difficulty and persecution and threats? What did the church do when everybody in the world, it seemed like, at least in leadership, was coming against them? Here's what they did. They did what we should do. They prayed. What happens when the church prays? I want you to see four things from Acts chapter 4 this morning in our time together that should stand out. These are things that should be a part of our times of prayer as well as how God works and moves through our times of prayers. Four things this morning. If you're ready to hear them, would you say, All right. All right? Number one is as the church prays, we should make sure that we follow their example by doing this. We should express our praise to God. That sounds very simple, but when the church prays, I believe wholeheartedly we need to be intentional to first express our praise to God. Notice what the early church did in verse 24. The Bible says, They lifted their voice in one accord and said, Oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Stop for just a moment. I think it's important for us to recognize that before the early church asked anything of God, before they brought any problem or any plea, before they brought any petition or supplication, before they even interceded for the needs of others, the very first thing they did is this. They got their eyes Above the distractions, above the difficulties and the challenges and the pain and the threats, they got their eyes above the storm and they fixed their eyes on the Savior. The very first thing they did, the Bible tells us, is they began to give these words of praise to God. I believe wholeheartedly this morning, whether you're praying individually or whether we're praying as a church, the first thing we should be intentional to do is we should get our eyes off of ourselves and off of our situation and focus our attention on God. Be intentional when we come before God, letting his praises continually be on our lips. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 119. He said, seven times a day, I praise you. Seven times a day, I praise you. Why? Because his mind was continually on the greatness of God. That number seven in the Hebrew culture was a number for completion. Yet the reality is, is I believe we should be intentional. Now, does that mean you need to stop seven times a day and praise God? That's something I've been convicted to do recently, but that's not necessarily what the Bible's saying. It is simply saying we should continually have a heart and a mindset and a focus to recognize the greatness of God and to give him praise for who he is. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Jesus said it this way as he's teaching us the Lord's Prayer. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Nehemiah modeled in Nehemiah chapter one as he said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. It is not until we get our focus and our attention on God and have a right view of God that we can have a right perspective of the various challenges that we face. We live in a broken world, don't we? Fact of the matter is, is that everywhere we look around us, we see the evidences and the consequences of the fall that happened so many years ago. In fact, all you gotta do is turn on the TV and watch the news for just a little while, or read the newspaper. I know that that seems to be a lost art these days, but you can catch up on the news of the day, and you can come away with an attitude that would say, come Lord Jesus, you know what I'm talking about? Because as we look at these things, we see all the evidences of the brokenness in our world. But here's the fact, you don't just have to read the news. We can look at the brokenness in our own lives, the evidences of sin in our own lives, and in our own families, our own relationships, and we're reminded of the struggles and the challenges. And what God is calling us to do is saying, listen, don't get so consumed by all the storms and all the brokenness and all the challenges and all the hurts and all the pains. No, you lift your eyes to me, lift your eyes to the hill, knowing where your help comes from. Look above them all, recognize that I am God and I have all power and I have all authority and I'm greater than any storm that you're going to face. That's what God is calling the church to do, and that's what the church is doing by their example. They're getting their eyes away from their situation for a moment and focusing on the Lord because it is in focusing on the Lord that we begin to have a proper perspective of everything else around us. Some of us today need to hear that because what we see in our life are the difficulties and the hindrances and the barriers and the giants that seem enormous. And when we're facing a giant, it seems huge. Huge. I think of David and Goliath and that whole story and that account as it unfolds. David, no doubt, he saw Goliath. Goliath was huge. All the Israelite army, they were all terrified of him, grown men terrified. But David wasn't afraid because he wasn't looking merely at the stature of the giant. He was looking at the greatness of God. And so he would say to the giant, you've come to me with your power, with a spear and a sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And in this day, you will be destroyed. The focus of David was not the giant, the focus of David was the greatness of the one that he represented and stood for. Recently in my devotional time, I've been reading, I'm now reading through Jeremiah, but I just finished the book of Isaiah. And in reading through it, there are several verses of scripture in chapters 44 through 46, that really just have encouraged me. And I wanna share them with you because I believe they'll encourage you. There are many things in life that you can turn into a a God. A little G God that you would worship and spend your time and attention and focus on, frankly, worshiping in many ways. But listen to what the living God of heaven said to the Israelites 700 years before the birth of Christ. Here's what he said in Isaiah 44, verse 6. God, the living God, the God that we love and worship and serve today, he says this. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. Isaiah 44 verse eight, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it and you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? Listen to what the all-knowing, sovereign, omniscient God of heaven says, I know of none. Isaiah 44 verse 24, I the Lord and the maker of all things, listen to this, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. That's the power and the greatness of our God. Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Verse 21, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the very beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. You say, Pastor, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. When we pray, we are not praying to a God. We are praying to the living God who created the heavens and the earth. When the early church prayed, they said, God, we come to you knowing that you are the living God who created the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. God, the mysteries that we haven't yet discovered, the things that still remain unknown, the things that are in the deep that our eyes have never even seen, the mysteries of the world that we can't even fathom, God, we know that you are the source, you are the creator, and you are the sustainer of all these things. So God, we come to you giving and expressing our praise. Friend, it's amazing when we come to God, no matter what the situation, if we will begin to praise him, how he begins to give us a right perspective in our Prayers, which lead us to the second point. Not only did they express praise to God, but in the midst of their prayer as a church, they explained the problems that they faced, and we should do the same. Verse 25 through 29, they began to tell us what they were going through. Now, please understand as the early church is praying and talking to God, please hear me very, very clearly. I am not suggesting that we should only pray in times of difficulty when we're facing a circumstance or a trial. That's not what I'm saying. Please also understand that I'm not suggesting or saying that when you pray that it needs to become a big whine and complain fest where you just bring everything to God, woe is me, woe is That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. We should be honest and real when we come to God. Some, sometimes we as Christians are the worst to put on a smile and act like everything's Okay. We might have had the worst morning possible getting to church. We get out of the car, and it's everybody put on a smile. Life is good, you're good, I'm good, everything's perfect. great. let's go to church. When we come before God, God wants us to be real and to be honest. I was reminded of this several years ago with a, 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 a gentleman who was a, someone I knew in the community where I lived at the time and, and he became a friend and and I was very, very grateful and thankful he became a brother in Christ. The Lord allowed me to lead him to, to faith in Christ several years ago now. But I remember early on, and he was asking several questions about life and about faith, and he asked if we could meet, and we began to meet and talk through questions and just real challenges that he had that were kind of hindering him to follow in Christ. And, but I began to notice something about him personally in his life, and that is that there was a statement that he would make. Anytime things got tense, stressful hurtful anytime things happened in his life that he didn't like as if you'd ask him how he's doing he would make the statement he would say it's all good it's all good and I and I remember talking with him about this and and finally one day kind of graciously and trying to very gently kind of talk to him about this because literally over any situation he'd face he would say it's all good I mean, his, his kids could be sick, his wife could be mad at him, he could be told he was going to be fired from a job, he could be running fever, and his dog could die. And you'd ask him what he's doing, he'd say, it's all good. It's all good. And I remember one day sitting there and like, hey, buddy, you know, like, it's not really all good. It's not good when your wife's upset. It's not good when your dog dies. It's not good when you feel bad. It's not good when these things happen. So, so be honest about it. Here's the reality. Sometimes when we come before God, we have this way of putting on this mask and acting on a, on a show in some ways, like everything's all good and we, and we act like everything's just perfect and wonderful. Here's the reality. We need to be honest with God about who we are, be honest with God about what we feel, be honest with God about the struggles that we face. The early church was. And we see that even in the way that they prayed. Now, I would suggest this morning that none of us enjoy circumstances or difficulties. Am I right? I mean, how many of you are just so excited this week because you know you're going to have a major circumstance in life by the end of the week? Anybody really excited about that? I'm not excited about I don't enjoy circumstances, difficulties, trials, and challenges. But I will say that in them, in those difficulties, in those problems and struggles along the way, God often uses those to draw us closer to himself and to reveal things about himself and to teach us things that we never would have learned otherwise. In fact, James says it this way in James chapter one verses two through four, he says, "Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." In other words, when you go through difficulty and circumstance, listen, bring it to God, turn it over to him, trust him, and watch him in that difficulty mold you and shape you and comfort you and help you and draw you closer and teach you things that you never would have known otherwise. What should we do when we face those times of difficulty? We should do what the early church did. We should pray. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. He says, be anxious for nothing, But in, what's the next word? Everything. What does everything mean? It means everything. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the result. The peace of God which passes all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I do not enjoy difficulties and circumstances. I don't enjoy times and seasons of affliction, but I am thankful for what God produces in my life through those times. Here's how the psalmist said it in Psalm 119. Listen to this profound statement, and yet it's so simple. Here's what he said in Psalm 119, verse 71. He says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn, Lord, your statutes. Now, I've never gone into a season of trial or difficulty and said, Oh God, this is so good for me, I'm so excited. No, I've never done that. But you know what? By God's grace and by his mercy, there have been some trials and some storms and some difficulties that God's brought me through. And he's molded me and he's shaped me and he's convicted me and broken me and taught me some things about himself and sometimes even about my own self that I can, by his grace, look back and say, you know what? It was good for me that I faced those things because God taught me and he drew me closer during that time. What did the church do? The church expressed their praise, but then they also explained their problems. And here's their problem. The early church is being persecuted and they were being threatened. And so you can go back and read verses 25 through 29. And here's what they were saying. They were saying, God, the same leaders that two months ago came against Jesus, the same ones that Persecuted him and threatened him, the same ones that were in the crowd chanting, crucify him, the same ones that were allowed to do whatever your hand allowed them to do. Whatever you had determined to accomplish through Jesus' life, whatever that would mean, which ultimately it led to his death, Lord, the same people that did that to Jesus, they're coming against us and they're threatening us. What are they doing? They're being honest. They're expressing their problem to God. But notice what they requested. Now, honest confession from your pastor. In my flesh, if I were praying for someone that had caused me harm, or someone that was threatening me or coming against me, or they had already killed someone that I dearly loved less than 60 days ago, if I were in that moment, I had to confess that in my flesh, I would probably be like, God, God, Go ahead and get them, you know? Now's the time. God, here are their names. I'll tell you their names and their addresses, God, just in case you need help. God, go ahead and judge them. Just let them have it, God. And I'll sit back and watch and be humble about it. That's not what they did. You know what they prayed? Verse 29. Now, Lord, take note of their threats. Take note of their threats. They were content to say, God, we just want to make, we want you to be aware. Would you take note of what they're doing? God, you be aware of the struggles that we're having? Would you be aware of the attacks that they're bringing against us? They were willing to trust God's sovereign hand at work in their lives. And because they were willing to trust God with these individuals and with the threats and the difficulty and the persecution and the pain, because they were willing to trust God with that, they didn't have to worry about it anymore. It's like the early church was saying, God, we're dealing with this, but we bring it to you. We put it in your hands. We ask for you to move however you desire to move. We're going to be focused on what you've called us to do. I'm not going to worry with that any longer. I'm not going to be consumed with that any longer. We're not going to have fear. We're not going to let anxiety rule our hearts and minds. We're not going to be struggling with these different things. No, God, we're going to be faithful to do what you call us to do. So would you just take note of what's happening over here? Incredible faith that convicts me and challenges me. Those struggles and those storms, God, I give it to you. I trust that you're at work in it. Do what they've called me to do. They explain the problems that they face. Third, what happens when the church prays? We express our praise. We explain the problems that we're going through, but but then we move into kind of the results of that. What happens next is this. We embrace the purpose of God. We embrace the purpose of God. Verse 29. Now remember, these same believers especially from the apostles who would be sharing the truth of what took taking place, they had heard Jesus say, you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses throughout all the world. These individuals understood clearly that God's purpose for their life was to take the gospel message from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. They knew that they were not just there to occupy space and occupy time and to uh, consume oxygen, if you will. They knew that God had a uniquely designed purpose for them. And that purpose was to take the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, to the ends of the world. Having said that, notice what they next prayed. Lord, take note of their threats, verse 29, and grant us, allow us. Open up doors for us that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence or with all courage or boldness. What are they doing? They are acknowledging, please see this, they're understanding their purpose, but they're also understanding that the only way they can accomplish their purpose is through the power and help of God. They couldn't take the gospel to the ends of the world on their own. They couldn't be effective on their own. They couldn't make disciples of all nations. Here they are in Jerusalem and they're already being threatened and persecuted. They realize their purpose, but they also realize that God was the source of their power. Now let me illustrate that for just a moment in a very practical way. I wasn't planning to share this today, but but I am. Last year, at the end of the end of the mowing season, how many are excited that mowing season's right around the corner? We love spring and the flowers. It's so beautiful, beautiful Sunday. I I don't know anybody harder that loves mowing. If you do, God bless you. We'll pray for you. Anyway. (laughs) Last year at the end of the mowing season, I was mowing one day. Uh, My boys often helped me with mowing, but this particular day I was mowing and, and all was well and good. And I went to engage the blade, and instantly the thing wasn't working. Now To be perfectly honest, I am not a mechanically inclined individual, okay? I know it's probably comes as a surprise to you, but I'm just not, okay? So uh, so I I literally, I got off the mower, and I kind of looked around at different things and tried to figure out what was going wrong. I I couldn't figure out what was going wrong, and I was frustrated with it because I don't know how to fix a lot of things like that, but I cranked the mower back up, and I took it around back behind the house, and I shot it. No, not really. I didn't shoot it, but (laughs) I took it back behind the house, and I parked it, and in my mind, I said, I'll come back to this later. Men, how many of you know that when you come back to things later, it doesn't always happen immediately, right? Well, yesterday I was at home, and I'm looking out at the yard, and I'm realizing, ugh, mowing season's about to be here. I probably need to go look at that mower. I get on the mower, still gas in it, turn the key. It cranks up just like that. I couldn't believe it. I was like, man, there's a miracle this thing's going to work this season. Awesome. But again, I couldn't get the blades to engage. And so I did the same thing I did months ago. I began to, I opened the hood and I began to look at this thing. It's a riding mower and I'm looking underneath the deck and I cannot figure out like I, what's going on. I take the deck off and, and, and I know you may not be into mechanics and I'm not either, but I was like, man, the, the blade's spinning and the belt's fine. Like what's the deal with this thing? And so then I did what anybody should do. I, not really, but I went to YouTube and I watched videos of what could possibly be wrong with my mower. Really scientific approach here. So I determined that there was probably one of three things, and I go through this whole long process. When all is said and done, I was able to trace and realize the blades are accomplishing their purpose. Everything's spinning the way that it's supposed to. And actually, where I'm trying to engage the blade, like there's power. Everything's working the way it's supposed to. but There was one major problem. I quickly began to study and realize and trace some wires and I realized that the cable that connects the power to the purpose of the lawnmower was old and corroded and completely broken. The reason why there wasn't an effectiveness, the reason why it wasn't working, the reason why it wasn't accomplishing anything. Oh, there was plenty of power and yes, there was plenty of purpose, but the thing that connected the two together was completely missing. It was completely broken. This entire section of the cable was completely gone. I was able to order a part and hopefully we'll get it fixed completely and be done with it. Here's the reality. God is still God he is still greater than all things he still has all power and all authority there is nothing he can't do with him all things are possible and his purpose for the church is still to go and to share the gospel the good news with the with the world to make disciples of all nations God is still powerful our purpose is still the same but what is often lacking is the connection in between prayer is that connection Prayer is what allows us the power. It's what gives us the power that's needed to accomplish the purpose of going into all the world and making disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. So the early church, knowing that, they began to pray. What did they pray for? They prayed for open doors to share the word of God. Please hear this. They didn't pray, oh God, please deliver me from this circumstance. Oh God, please make our life easier. You hear what they're saying to us. God, please help them quit talking about us and ridiculing us. God, please help us in this politically correct environment, God, to make our life so much better and easier. No, that's not what they prayed. They prayed, God, would you give us boldness? Would you give us confidence, courage to preach your word, to share your word with others? Friend, I'm convinced if we will stop praying for more comfortable lives and instead of pray, God, would you open doors for us to share your word? We'll be amazed at how God works to move and answer that prayer. So often our prayers, even in ministry settings, please hear me, we begin to be so much more focused about the physical things in the world around us. The physical needs of the people. And please understand we should be praying about our physical needs. But please understand the greater need is the spiritual need of people. It's amazing when we start praying for the spiritual needs of people how God begins to work and move. A few weeks ago God convicted me in my own prayer time as I was praying through our prayer list here at the church. I found myself praying for physical ailment after physical ailment after physical ailment. And we should pray that way. But what was greatly lacking was our prayer for the spiritual needs of people and so I began to pray God would you give me eyes to see people around me like you see them God would you pray for this individual to come to know Christ as the Lord and Savior God would you do a work spiritually in this marriage and in this family and, and I began to pray that way and I'm just going to be blunt with you it's amazing to me over the past two weeks as I began to pray for the intentionally pray for the spiritual needs of people how God's began to put people in my life and in my path and he's been making me aware of their spiritual needs so that I can minister to them. It was standing in line at Walmart the other day. It was going to a dentist recently. He was talking with someone in line at a gas station. It's not that God's bringing any more people. Frankly, it's just the fact that I've slowed down a little bit, and I had my eyes a little more open to the spiritual needs around me. It's amazing how we begin to pray for the spiritual needs of others, how God begins to make us aware of the spiritual needs of others. We pray to share the word of God, but secondly, what did the church do? They prayed for opportunities to share in the work of God. Verse 30, they begin to pray, God, we ask that we may speak your word with confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I say it this way as sharing in the work of God because the early church clearly understood they weren't just asking God, God, would you move over here? God, would you work over here? God, would you do another miracle over here? No, they knew that God could still do miracles, but here's what we see throughout the entire book of Acts. We see miracle after miracle after miracle, but it's never that God was just doing this alone over here. It's that God partnered together with his people, with his servants, with his apostles, with the church, and they were joining him in his work. For example, in Acts 3, Did God heal the lame man at the temple? Yes. But were Peter and John a part of that process? Yes, they were. And we see all throughout the book of Acts, the early church being willing to join in the work that God was doing We see that clearly in this context. When they ask God, would you continue to work miracles and heal and restore and bring salvation? They're not just saying, God, will you do this? They're saying, God, we want to be a part of this with you. Show us where you're at work. We want to join you in it. We want to go there to share the gospel. God, we are willing to share in your work. Today, when you watched a video a little while ago, Pastor Michael talked about it of a ministry called Bless Every Home. How many of you saw the video? Very good, I think most of you did. I wanna encourage you, this is a practical, practical tool and a practical way that we can not only pray for our neighbors, but a way that we can join in the work that God is wanting to do. You'll receive an email if you're on our church mailing list or church database if you will, you'll receive an email this week explaining the details of that. Or you can go on the church website right now. I did this earlier today just to make sure I was right. You can click on the link that says connect and immediately there's a tab that comes up that says bless every home. You click on the link. You can do this from your computer. You can do this from your iPad. You can do this from your smartphone. And when you do it, it's really difficult. There's a little tab there that says sign up. I know it's really hard. But you hit the link that says sign up. And when you do, literally, if you want to be a part of this, you give your name. They do ask for your address and your email address, and here's what happens. As soon as you do that, every day, or as many days as you list in your settings, every day, you'll receive an email with a list of neighbors who live close to you. Every day so far this week, at least the last four days I've been doing this, I have gotten an email of the names and addresses of four to five of my immediate neighbors. And literally, when the link comes up, when the email comes through, I simply click on it. I got it this morning. It came in. The Bless Every Home website comes in, and it tells me neighbors to pray for today on March the 24th. And it gave me the list of five specific neighbors, and it even gave me their addresses. Now, of course, if I want to look up where they actually lived or go out of my way to minister to them, there's an easy way to do that. But simply, once I pray for them, I click that I've prayed for them. At the bottom, there's even a suggested prayer of how to pray for them. Today's, for example, according to 1 Peter 1, verse 24 to 25, the suggested prayer for yourself and for your neighbors is this. God, awaken those who are striving to make a name for themselves. Lead them to find their true selves in Jesus Christ. May they see the futility of this world and the hope that's found only in Jesus. And once I prayed for them, it sends me to a link and it shows me throughout the course of this week every neighbor that I have prayed for. Pretty simple. But the goal of the prayer is that in praying for them, it'll lead us into opportunities to care for them and minister to them. I moved here three years ago, June of 2016. And, and I'm just being blunt when I tell you this, we moved in and fairly quickly we met our immediate neighbors. But we live out in the country. We're not in an actual neighborhood. And so a lot of our, our, our neighbors are kind of scattered out a little bit, and so I haven't met all the people on our street. I haven't. Until this week, I haven't prayed for every neighbor on my street, nor have I known everyone that lives in every house. That's pathetic. It's sad. But this week in praying for them, guess what God's begun to do in my heart and life? God's begun to put things in my mind about, you know, here are some things that we could do to intentionally say hello. Reach out to them and show them the, really the kindness and grace and love of the Lord. There are some intentional things we can do to build relationships that as we're praying for them, we're getting to know them. And that as we get to know them, we'll go from praying prayer to care, then ultimately to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you, if you'd like to be a part of that, you can sign up. But regardless of which tool you use, be intentional. Yes, we should pray for the opportunity to share the word of God, but we should also share, pray for, for the opportunity to share in the work that he's doing, to be a part of what he is doing. What happens when we do that? What happens when we pray for God to move and we ask God to help us join him in his work? The final thing is this, we experience the presence of God. We experience the presence of God. Now, many people want to experience the presence of God, but frankly, we want it on our terms on how it's easy for us, when it's convenient or whatever else, how we want it to be. But God says, listen, when you come to me praising me, when you come to me um, uh, really honestly just bringing your concerns and your needs, when you come to me praying for the things that matter to me, in this context praying for the lost to be saved and praying for boldness to share my word, God is saying when you come with a willingness to be a part of that work, what happens? What happens is we experience his presence. What happens when we pray for opportunities to share the good news of the gospel with boldness? Notice what God did. There were two ways that God manifested his presence there in the early church. The first thing we see is that there was conviction and courage to share the gospel. Verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. One of the primary evidences of God's presence at work was that they now had a conviction and a courage to share the word of God, to share the gospel with boldness. In fact, from this point forward, you can read throughout the book of Acts and you see time after time after time, you see the church and you see its leaders standing with courage, even in the face of great persecution and opposition and faithfully preaching God's word. In Acts chapter seven, we see Stephen, standing and preaching the name of Jesus even as he is being martyred. In Acts chapter 8, we see Philip go into a stranger he had never met before. He's invited up into the chariot, and again, he's boldly speaking the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, we see Ananias going to a man who was known as Saul, the persecutor of the church. And yet he went to Saul and he shared with him the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes all the way on. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas there in the prison, they have boldness to share the gospel with the prisoner and with the, the jailer and with his family. There's boldness that takes place in the book of Acts. I pray that God would help us to get back to where we have that same kind of boldness to be a witness for the Lord. We experience the presence of God through conviction and courage to share the gospel. And finally, we experience the presence of God manifested in our life when there is care and concern for all the saints. Notice what happened after that, verse 32. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul there was a supernatural unity that took place in that early church. This is the same type of unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17 when he prayed the high priestly prayer. It's the same unity that Paul encouraged in Philippians chapter 2 when he said, I want to encourage you to have the same heart for each other, to have the same unity and love for each other. That's what was taking place. And how do we see that demonstrated? We see it demonstrated in verse 32. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. In other words, literally, God was working in such a way in the hearts and lives of that church, they had a burden to share the gospel with all who needed Jesus, but they also had a deep burden and conviction to love and minister to the people That God had brought in their midst. Can I say to you this morning when I think about the early church it is no wonder that God moved the way that he did. It is no wonder that literally the world was turned upside down in the book of Acts. It is no wonder that multitudes are being saved and lives are being changed because frankly when they saw the church They heard a gospel message about Jesus Christ who loved people where they were, called them to repentance and to salvation, and through faith could be saved. They heard the gospel message that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again, and not only did they hear the message, they saw the proof that it was true because they saw the lives that had been changed and they saw the care and concern, the love that they had for one another. Could it be that so often One of the primary reasons that the world turns a deaf ear to the church is because, frankly, we profess to have faith in a living Savior, Jesus Christ, but we do so only when it's convenient or easy. Could it be that one of the reasons the world often turns a deaf ear to the church is because we talk about Jesus who had a love for all, and yet when they look at us, they don't even see us loving one another. I believe wholeheartedly if we will love the Lord Jesus Christ with a boldness to share his word and if we will love each other in a way that we'll be willing to minister to one another, putting your needs above my own, that we will minister to one another in that way, God can work in such a mighty way to draw people to himself. What was the end result in Acts chapter 5? It was this as I close. What happened in the book of Acts as a result of this church that was boldly sharing the gospel regardless of the cost? What happened to a church that frankly prayed with a desperation and dependence upon God? What happened with a church that loved each other and ministered to one another? Acts chapter 5 verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. That doesn't just mean there were numbers on a roll or people's names on a list. No, they were people who were believing in Jesus, turning from sin, and living for him. There were people who were being radically changed by the power of the gospel. The same God that was alive and well in the days of Acts is alive and well today. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is still power available today. The same purpose that the early church had in Acts chapter 4 is still the same purpose that we have today. But what's the connection between the two? The connection is prayer. And my hope and desire is that we at Crosslink will be a church that prays and that in prayer, by God's grace and for his glory, we will see God work and move in a powerful way. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you for this day and we thank you for the time that we've had together. God, it encourages me when I think of how you worked and moved in Acts chapter four. But it also challenges me and it convicts me for times, frankly, that I've been caught up in sometimes numerous different parts of good things, even ministry. And at the same time, have neglected prayer. So God, I pray that you would be with us today. I pray that we would be a church that would pray. I pray, God, that we'd be a church that would pray for opportunities and would pray for boldness to share your word like you've called us to. But God, I also pray that we'd be a people who would love one another just like you called us to. God, I pray that the world around us would see and know that Christ is real, not because it's how loud we've preached it, but because they see the evidence of that in our lives and in our love for one another. So God, we thank you for that. God, I believe the work that you want to do in this city and in this valley, frankly, it's far greater than any of us can do. Lord, Lord this early church knew that it was impossible for souls to be saved and lives to be changed, it was impossible to take the gospel message to the ends of the world apart from you. And God, as I consider what you wanna do, even just right here in this church and in this city and in this valley and the regions beyond, God, I'm aware, I can't do this. We can't do this. We need you. God, I thank you that with you, all things are possible. So God, I pray today that you would help us to be a church that would honor you by our faithful devotion and dependence upon you. God, I pray that we would not pray for easy lives. Lord, nothing of eternal significance is really ever easy. God, may we not be focused on our comforts and our ease and whatever else, but God, may we truly be focused on your callings and your purposes and your convictions. God, may we not be so focused on popularity that, We're not faithful to preach your word and share the gospel. God, I pray that we would be faithful to see the opportunities that you put before us and that we would be faithful and courageous to step up and to say yes to you and to share. God, I also pray that you would show us opportunities around us of how we can love one another as the body of Christ well. Jesus, even as you sacrificed and gave your own life for the glory of the Father, but also for the good of all mankind, I pray, God, that we would not live our lives for our wants or our privileges or our freedoms, so to speak, but that we would live our lives for the glory of God the Father and for the good of others around us. I praise you for that in Jesus' name